Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 31 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. Today we have James Krieger on here. So uh, listen in, we'll tell you a little bit more about James and who he is and what he does uh, and what he's been working on, in particular some research on testosterone. Um, we also talk a lot about low-carb diets, which is a popular thing in our industry right now. Uh, a lot of industry misinformation, which seems to be a theme in most podcasts. His role as not just a fitness professional coaching clients, but uh, also as a teacher within the industry. And a lot about industry tribalism, and it's good and it's bad. Uh, James is also going to appear at the Inland Empire Fitness Conference in Spokane in early April. I'll be attending. So stay tuned, enjoy, give us a share, give us some five-star reviews on iTunes, and uh, check it out. Thank you. Shut up and sit down. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's Andrew Coates here. Dean Guido over there is making finger gestures to try to count us down to go live. Uh, but today we welcome James Krieger. Um, our recent guest, Lee Peel, made a point of connecting us with James to talk to him. We sometimes ask our guests, hey, who's someone you really like to get on here? And Lee was jumping up and down to make sure that we talk to James. So a little bit about him. <laughs> Short intro. James holds a dual master's in nutrition and exercise science and runs his website, weightology.net. We're probably going to talk a bit about that, and you guys should check it out. He's a published scientist, author, and event speaker. I read that straight off the website, just so that we got that right. <laughs> Welcome, James. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, we might as well jump right into some questions. So uh, you've got a pretty extensive career of study in the fitness industry. What are you, what are you currently interested in? Uh, what, what currently interests you the most? And, uh, and that you've been working to educate everyday people about yeah so for me it's pretty much anything dealing with the science of muscle gain or fat loss uh um those two areas just interest me a ton um i kind of go back and forth between the two um lately lately it's been maybe a little bit more muscle gain and maybe it's just because i'm getting older and and uh it's getting harder and harder for me to put on muscle and even keep the muscle that i have so uh, so maybe it's <laughs> maybe that helps drive my interest in that area but uh um i'm actually writing a right now i'm writing an interesting uh article for my research review on um and there's really nothing out there out there like this but uh on how variations in testosterone levels within just a normal range how that might affect muscle because we all know that you know, if you take anabolic steroids, you, you'll put on a ton of muscle. But, but you know, some people argue, well, if you're in a physiological normal range, it probably won't matter. But, but the physiological normal range, you know, varies quite a bit, you know, from, you know, 300 up to 1,000 around there. It depends on what reference range you use. And so the question is, you know, if someone is, someone is in the three or 400, you know, are they, do they have a harder time putting on muscle than someone who say 800? So, so that's an, a question I'm trying to answer right now with my article I'm writing. So, so yeah, I kind of jump around between muscle gain, fat loss, uh, as far as my interests. So with, with, with that, you could almost uh, partner with supplement company and get test boosters on <laughs> back, back in the, back in the mix. <laughs> Actually, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> uh, that's the thing. All the test boosters are, are pretty much shit, though. They're all crap. You know, uh, none of them boost it. I mean, none of them boost testosterone to any any physiological d degree. I mean, you, you pretty much need 
to get any boost in testosterone, you either need testosterone injections or you need a drug like, you know, Clomid or <laughs> HCG or something like that. So <laughs> actually, here's a really good uh, question that might be very practical for the audience. So obviously, a lot of things do affect physiological normal ranges for testosterone in men and women. And let's not forget about women who do have a lower level of testosterone thus, but it's important to them. What are some basic things, things like maybe sleep or, or dietary stuff that actually are known to play a role in having better levels of testosterone within normal physiological ranges? Oh, yeah. So that's actually a really good question. And yeah, one of the, I mean, you, you did mention once one sleep is one big one. But one of the biggest ones is just the amount of body fat you have. So if you're um, if you're overweight or obese, if you have a higher levels of body fat, that's actually associated with lower testosterone levels. And so just getting leaner can be probably the number one thing that you can do to tell boost your testosterone levels. Uh, so um, uh, the research is actually pretty strong on that. Uh, um, uh, and actually, it's, it's funny that you just asked me that because right before we got on this call, uh, I, I, I'm right, right in the middle of writing that article and I actually just posted a chart in my article showing that exact uh, from one study that was just recently published that looked at testosterone levels across different quartiles of BMI. And as, basically, as BMI went up, testosterone levels went down. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's probably the biggest one I would say out of anything. Um, uh, what about mineral deficiencies uh, and things like that? I've heard things about zinc. And uh, yeah, there's there's some evidence, you know, like if you're zinc deficient and stuff like that, uh, that might cause a role. But, but most people aren't going to – I mean, that's not an issue for most people. But, uh, um, I mean, if you're taking a basic multivitamin, you have a reasonably healthy diet, uh, that shouldn't, should shouldn't be an issue. Um, so, um, I'm actually looking forward to the answer on what you said about – more research on the effects of testosterone within fi normal physiological ranges. Because like you said, I continuously hear in the literature that's out there that it doesn't really matter much whether or not you're low and high as long as it's within normal physiological ranges. And I've never bought that. Like sometimes intuitively something that's out there just doesn't pass the smell test. And I couldn't get behind the idea that it's just, it's the same thing to be low physiological versus high. I just have to believe that more there's got to be some effect. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, I mean, yeah, cause if you think about it, I mean, the, the physiological range is so high. I mean, you know, 300 to, to 900, that's a tripling of your testosterone yeah. levels, you know, <laughs> but, but, but 300 to 900 is still within physiological range. So first, you know, yeah, I, you know, um, um, yeah, so I'm actually going through all the data on that. Uh, there's there's a lot of interesting studies that have been done out there. There's studies where they've they'll give someone a drug that basically s completely suppresses your testosterone production, and then they'll give people different doses of testosterone within a physiological normal range, and then they'll look at at lean mass and body composition. So, so those are some of the studies I'm going to talk about in in my research review article. Um, um, and then there's cross sectional data too. There was actually one just just recently published, Jeremy Lenneke was one of the authors on the paper that looked at uh, testosterone levels. They just took data from the NHANES, uh, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. I, I don't remember the, what NHANES exactly stands for, but um, looking at testosterone levels just cross-sectional across the nation and look at, you know, comparing it to fat-free mass, you know, and they, they found just even within physiological normal ranges, different levels of fat-free mass for different levels of testosterone. So, uh, so, but I'm going to go through all that data and, and present it all and, and, uh, um, 
um, in my article. So that'd be a wild study to be a part of the one where they like basically crashed their test. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd sign up for that one. That one would feel like oh, how much would be paid for it. I guess here's another question, sort of uh, that we didn't make in the notes, but I think it's really important too. Is how does testosterone matter to women? Because maybe some of our female listeners, uh, fitness professionals or enthusiasts might sort of tune out the conversation about testosterone, but women have it too. So how does it matter for them? How does it affect them? So, that, so that's a really good question. And uh, I, I, the data is not as clear because testosterone levels are so much lower in women. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say whether different levels in women, you know, let's say within a physiological, what's physiological normal for a woman, whether that will actually impact um, – uh, whether it would impact muscle. I mean, I do know there's data to show that it impacts things like libido and stuff in women, you know, so, um, different levels of testosterone, even within a physiological normal range seem to impact libido in women, but, but whether it impacts muscle, that that's a good question. I haven't so far, I haven't come across any research to, 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 you know, show, you know, um, whether that actually makes a difference. Um, the interesting thing about when you compare men and women, though, when you look at just relative gains in muscle, so when I say relative gains, just let's say like a percentage gain, um, at least in untrained people, um, I don't know if there's data on trained people, I'd have to go back and look, but on untrained people, women will actually make similar muscle gains to men on a percentage basis, so um, even though women have much less testosterone. So, for example, you know, if men you know, say a man goes, he's never weight trained before he goes on a weight training program and he has like a 10% increase in muscle size. Well, a woman will actually experience a similar 10% increase. Um, but the absolute amount is obviously much lower because, um, women just have an absolute, their absolute amount of muscle mass is lower. So, so women can still make really good gains, you know, even if their testosterone levels are, are much lower, but, but it is a good, it is an interesting question, and actually, uh, really, that reminds me that you know to actually do, do a little bit of digging while, while I write this article to see if there's any data on women correlating testosterone levels with lean mass. You know, it, it's hard to say. So, I guess we'll have to stay tuned for the answer on that one. Yeah, I, I think we should jump from testosterone to low carbs because that's all the, the <laughs> that's all the buzz <laughs> lately. Uh, and I mean, could you offer just I guess some practical insight? even for our fitness professionals or enthusiasts on like how to navigate this low carb discussion and just some takeaways that literally help people understand. And this is kind of leading that, but why low carb isn't in itself the, the answer, I guess most people are looking. Yeah. So I, I guess, um, yeah, the low carb discussion can be tough because, you know, the thing about low carb, a lot of people, when they go on a low carb diet, um, they experience a very rapid in decrease in weight loss or, or rapid increase in weight loss, I should say. Um, and of course a lot of that is water weight that's dropped very quickly and everything. But, um, so that really reinforces the idea of, of, you know, just of the general public that, Oh, well it must be the carbs that are making me fat and everything. Um, and a lot of people do have pretty good success on low carb diets without a say specifically counting calories and things like that. Um, and so again, they'll, they'll blame the carbs for making them fat. And, um, you know, I even had a, you know, I was actually at a, a party the other night just with some neighbors and at, at a neighbor's house. <laughs> All the good things happened. And, and one of my neighbors, one of my, you know, I started, started talking about something related to, I don't know how it came up in the conversation, but, uh, 
but the, the guy goes, Oh yeah, it's the carbs. And I was like, well, no, it's not, it's not really the carbs. It's just, um, the, the thing is about is, is when people go on low carb diets, there's a number of things that happen. I mean, number, number one, the foods they eliminate are foods that are actually very calorie dense. So when you start eliminating, I mean, usually when people go on a low carb diet, what do they eliminate? They eliminate cake and cookies and ice cream and everything like that. Well, those foods typically are high in fat too. So it's, it's not just the carbs they're cutting out, but, um, so you're limiting a lot of very calorie dense foods. Um, so that's the one thing that's happening. The, the second thing that's happening is a lot of time when people eliminate things like bread and things, you know, bread it, itself is not inherently fattening or anything, but bread is, is actually very calorie dense. A lot of people don't think of bread as very high in calories. Um, but that's cause bread is mostly air. But as soon as you chew the bread, you know, you basically take the air out of it. It's actually fairly calorie dense. So it's very easy to overeat on bread too. And so people cut out bread and they're like, Oh, I'm losing weight. And I was like, well, it's because you probably cut a, cut a bunch of calories that you were eating. And, um, and you and, and the second thing is you, you're cutting out a lot of high reward foods, foods that, um, have very, uh, that are highly palatable, that really impact the reward centers in your brain that drive you to eat more. Um, and so it's very easy to spontaneously eat less, uh, when you go low carb. Um, and then typically what happens is people's protein intake goes, goes up when they low carb because they start eating more meat and, and things like that. And so that'll, uh, basically su- help suppress their appetite more and they end up eating less. So uh, low carb is just, it's just one way to, for people to eat less, you know, that, that's all it is. Um, and it's, it's can be successful for some people. Um, it, it can be somewhat challenging long term though, because carbs are everywhere. And so it's very, the sustainability of a low carb approach, it can be questionable. Um, I mean, when you look at, uh, you look at the national weight control registry, which is a database, a national database of people that have lost something like at least 30 pounds and kept it off for at least a year. Um, very few people in that database are actually low carb people, um, which I think shows you how difficult it is to stay low carb over a very long period of time. And the thing is, the the thing is when it comes to fat loss and weight loss and things like that, most people are successful at losing weight initially. It's about, it's keeping it off. It's really hard. Um, and that's what the, the, all the research data shows too. Um, but the way to keep it off is, is it has to be a, an approach that's sustainable over the, over the really long term. And so, so that's one of the reasons why a low carb approach can be private problematic for some people. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, you, you asked about, you know, it, it's not going to give you magical results. It's not because you could go low carb and still not lose any weight if you're not in an energy deficit. You know, um, I mean, if I start, I could seriously go, I can switch to any meat diet and stuff like that. But if I start slathering tons of butter on my meat and putting butter in my coffee <laughs> and all that shit, it's a lot of butter. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lose any weight because my calorie intake is, is, hasn't gone down, well, you know? And I'm, I'm listening so. to this answer. And like, this is like, that's like the answer, but like you're in this situation scenario, your neighbor asks you, I'm assuming that they don't know you've have like a hundred papers. Like, what was the answer you gave? Like, what do you give them in that situation? Cause I'm sure you find yourself in social situations and you're like, your brain's like, Oh my God, not this again. But what do you say to like the, the normal person who doesn't know that you know a lot of things? Like what's the answer? I, I basically just give them a short version of what I just told you. I said, well, 
I just say, I, I just tell them, you know what, low carb is just a way for you to cut your calories. It's just, a, it's just one way to cut your calories. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And, uh, um, and, and then I just say, yeah, you know, just a lot of high carb foods are just tend to be very high calorie. So and do they know, and that's basically, do they know you? that's, that's what do they know that you have your extensive background? You do like, like, honestly, like you go to this party, like, do they know? <laughs> <laughs> my my na- well the, in this party my neighbor actually did he did know he does know I, I don't know if he knows how extensive my background is but he knows a little bit about my background so um because his wife has asked me a lot of stuff too and and his wife and, and my wife are, are friends yeah, she so uh, she's like i need she's telling her husband like i need some diet advice okay go bake him a go bake him a cake and go put your questions there <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's what actually happens that's what i would do <laughs> <laughs> so uh it is kind of funny though in, in social situations yeah. uh uh um and and sometimes and there are times where i just i won't even i won't especially if someone like one time i was at a um at a little neighborhood uh event and there was a you know a bunch i don't even know it was a neighborhood event but like basically my homeowners association they just they have a there's a little, we live really close to a lake. And so, so the homeowners association has its own little beach on, on the lake. So, nice. so, so, so summertime, you know, a lot of the homeowners, I mean, we, we go down to the beach and we just hang out down there and stuff like that. And, and one of the neighbors who I didn't really know, um, uh, was found out something, found out about my background and then started talking about weight loss and kind of started talking about a lot of woo stuff, like <laughs> kind of. <laughs> And, and that was just one situation where I was like, usually situations like that, I just don't really say anything. Like, like I don't know what she was talking. I remember it was just, it was. She was taking all these special supplements and like I don't know. It was like it was way off. It was way off the deep end, and so uh, like, um, that was one like- conversation I didn't continue. But <laughs> I can just picture uh, like uh, Dean Somerset here is up in Edmonton with us, and he's done our podcast a couple times. I can just picture him going to his homeowners association, having a conversation, and someone giving a whole bunch of really really screwing fitness <laughs> advice and i know dean enough to know that he'd probably be very diplomatic with how he responded to it but you just picture this or someone sits down with fuck uh alan aragon again and just starts going off about keto diets or whatever and i, I just i'm sure this happens to these these fitness professionals who oh, are very uh, renowned you know, but people everyday people don't often know who they are <laughs> well i actually i should ask out because like I, that's something i never asked alan is like like I've always wondered how, because usually when I'm hanging out with Alan, it's it's with other guys in the industry, so so we're not really exposed to those type of conversations. You know, I don't see how Alan reacts to those type of conversations or Dean or any of those guys. So with Alan, I should be curious. I, I bet you Dean. I, I bet you Dean would would make some kind of smartass remark that doesn't really sound smartass to the person. I don't and know. He would laugh. He would laugh internally. Sense of humor, right? He would laugh, and he would be the only one laughing, and he he'd love it. I wonder if Alan, like, if he does what he does on the internet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's like, just wait. He gets his fucking, he's like, he references all this stuff and just lays into him. That would be awesome. <laughs> Pulls out his phone yeah. with PubMed on it. <laughs> I'd love to see Lane Norton's reaction in person because I don't know if Lane has the restraint <laughs> that the rest oh, of you guys do. <laughs> that's all we want. Actually, that's, Lane would be the, I would want Lane to react like Lane reacts on his social media. That'd be 
and then film it. I would love, I would just love to see it just cause like sometimes you're like, you want to do it and it's, you know, it's not worth it. And again, it, it's just, they're ignorant. So they don't know. And you, you would hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah. Let, oh, yeah, go ahead, James. Oh uh, no. Yeah. It's like, that, that's the thing. I tend to, I tend to have a lot of restraint in those situations, but, uh, um, you know, <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't know how Wayne. I, I, I can totally picture what Wayne would do. So. <laughs> Chairs thrown through windows and shit like that. Let's uh, <laughs> let's take this low carb conversation into something that we all uh, deal with as well, <clears throat> and that's the people like you mentioned the bulletproof coffee. So you know charlatans like David Asprey or David Fraudcado Wolf. We had uh, Dr. Spencer Dolsky <laughs> just join the podcast, and we'll release him by the time yours is out. His will be out. And he was at some conference and he saw that Asprey was there. And then, of course, he runs into David Avocado Wolf and gets David Avocado Wolf to say hi to Martin McDonald, which, of course, Avocado Wolf has no fucking idea what's going on, but it's a funny joke. So you get all these loud proponents of low carb and a lot of other misguided ideas. Uh, Some of these people, they're a bit misguided, maybe at best, you know, maybe the Joe Rogans, the Tim Ferrises, or the Charlatans that I just talked about in Frauds. Why do you feel it's important to battle this misinformation? But can this battle inadvertently serve to legitimize these people or expose people who are more vulnerable to crazy ideas, expose them to these crazies and pull them together and actually just drive more audience to an avocado wolf? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I've seen people make various arguments on that. So, for example, I've seen Lyle McDonald argue don't even link to these people. Don't don't talk about them because you're just going to legitimize them and stuff like that. Um, so you know, there's that camp, and then there's the camp that are like, well, you know, you gotta if you if you don't say anything, then it then there what happens is you get the people who are on the fence who can be easily taken in. You know, um, and I tend towards the latter. I, I I think it is important to fight those battles simply be because. There's some people that, yeah, you. it doesn't matter what you do. They're going to get caught up in that shit no matter what. Um, but it's the people that, for me, that that I'm trying to reach are the people that are kind of on the fence who who are actually a little bit reachable, you know, um, that you can help pull away. And, and, and I'll use my, my insulin article series, um, you know, that I wrote, you know, Jesus, it's like eight years ago now that I wrote that, that series. But um, it's still like one of the most popular series on my site. And, um, I've had so many people come up to me, you know, or, or message me, send me emails, things like that saying, Oh, I, your insulin series really opened my eyes. I was so stuck in low carb dogma and stuff like that. And, and I read your insulin series and it totally, um, it totally like changed my mind. And so, uh, so there, there are people that are reachable out there, and that's why I do think it's important to keep fighting the battles, even if, you know, I, like I said, some people think it legitimizes them. I don't think it does legitimize them. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think it does because I don't. A lot of people will say, "Oh, you're giving these people free publicity." I'm like, "No, I don't think so." Simply because these people already have way more reach than we do, anyway. Yeah. And so it's not like. I, I don't see us, you know, in the evidence-based industry really driving people towards those others because those people already have way more reach than we do. And the other thing is they already, 
um, they're appealing to certain aspects of human nature uh, that they're always going to win in that sense. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the people looking for quick fixes, the, the people who think that there's some type of, you know, some type of magical thing, people who believe that there's, you know, conspiracies and among researchers. And I mean, there's always going to be people who believe that shit and, um, and then they're going to tie into that. And so you can't, there's nothing you can do about that, but you can reach the people who, uh, the people who are, like I said, the fence setters, I think you can definitely get those. So I think that's exactly, and it's like you said, they're appealing to, I guess, the people who want the quick fix, where you're appealing to the people who are ready to make a change, and then you're going to win. Well, hopefully, if they if they look at both information, you're going to probably win that battle with the people on the fence because yeah. you have sound, I guess, research behind it. And if they don't believe it, then I guess they weren't ready anyways. So you are appealing yeah. to a better crowd, and the ones you're – appealing to are the ones making the actual change off that where i would say the opposite they have a bigger crowd but it's a not the people that are doing that stuff it's going to be a quick fix and they won't be there long term and then they'll come back to you hopefully yeah yeah the goal would be to try to see how you could appeal to the bigger audience but that's that's a whole mind fuck i don't know if you're yeah that's that's a tough one that's a tough one because i you know i mean people have written uh, james fell wrote an article about that on uh a while back about uh um, basically why it's always an uphill battle, you know, um, uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, you know, when you're on the evidence-based side and, and, uh, and you're, you're fighting against all these charlatans, you know, so. James and I have actually had that conversation a few times. We have a local charlatan I'm not going to get into, but, and it's, he's a guy who is gaining reach, but hasn't yet hit the, the avocado wolf type of fame at this point. But James is very hesitant to take him on because doesn't want to draw any more attention to him. You know, if he gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then I got a funny feeling James is going to make him a regular hobby. But it's, yeah, yeah, and that's just it too. It's like you you got to pick your battles with who you're dealing with, and if they're not that well known, maybe it's best not but, to even acknowledge. This them. might be a good question because you're kind of in this world. Is that a battle that you guys are constantly thinking about though, or are you just kind of doing your thing? Like, is it? Is it your battle to be had and are you guys taking it personally? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I don't really take it personally. I, it's, it's not a battle. I, I feel like I fight as much anymore. Um, I, I kind of leave that to some of the other guys now. I, like that used to be my thing though. I mean, I used to like, I mean, I went through a, a, a little time on my site. If you, uh, one of the things that stimulated, you know, my ideas for my insulin series was all the crap going on with Gary Taubes and stuff back then. And like, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write some stuff that totally counteract all this stuff, you know? Um, and, um, but now it's like, I don't feel the need to try to, um, correct some of the misinformation because it's just, it's overwhelming. I mean, I mean, you got everyone from Dr. Oz to, you know, to Taubes is still putting out bullshit to, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, and there's always someone, and there's always somebody new to take their place. So, you know, Taubes isn't quite as popular as it used to be, but now you've got other guys trying to take up his slack, like Jason Fung and stuff like that. And so, oh God, um, <laughs> it's, it's a crazy weird thing though. Like again, you, so we'll just say evidence-based people end up becoming pictured or painted as offensive because you're making people feel uncomfortable. And really it's just these idiots are putting out the information that are giving people what they want. And you guys look like the bad guys to some of them. They're like, oh, I know <laughs> fuck these offensive people. Why are you challenging us? Well, you're, you're a shill. <laughs> you're a shill for 
for Monsanto or but, whatever the fuck else. Challenge, but and well, challenging I, people is ends up being the bad thing to do, even though that's the right thing to do if you if you put your ethics and morals in the right place. I actually had somebody email me. So I had I had posted um I had posted uh, some video of, of a presentation I had given on sugar. And it was actually meant for my research review subscribers, but I didn't actually, I, I had forgotten to protect it. So it was like, it was free for everyone to see for like a day and I didn't realize. And all of a sudden I get this email from this guy and basically he basically just said what you just said. What Are you like some shill for Monsanto or something like that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like of course I, I thank the guy for, for emailing me because I, because he made me realize that I, that my, I hadn't protected my content. So, <laughs> so I, but I just, I, Oh my! God. It really <laughs> cracks me up that people when when people start throwing around accusations. I, I was like, I was like, what do these people think? Do you think we're just getting all these paychecks from all these big companies? Like, <laughs> like you're right. You're writing papers, like, and it's a long, tedious process, and you're not getting paid well for the time you're putting into it. If you do with the dollars and cents, it's like I'm not. I'm, <laughs> yeah. What do they think? <laughs> like you're getting paid like five cents an hour if you actually factor in, if, if even that. <laughs> I know it's. Right. I, I, I just I, I don't understand what these people think that we. I, I seriously, I mean, do they think that like we're just like a bunch of millionaires just being paid off by pharma companies and big <laughs> sugar and everything? I just like. They actually think this shit like legitimately. I've dealt with a little bit of it. It's nuts, but I, I just I don't know where my paychecks it's are. Because Vandy Morgan, because he keeps posting <laughs> pictures of Lamborghinis and shit. <laughs> that's why. That's why know. it's his fault. <laughs> no. Um, it, it makes me want to start just do it like, like, like just go to the, like one of the, the local luxury car dealers and just have a picture <laughs> taken of me, but, but make it look like it's not at a dealership. Right. And just saying, Hey, you know, start thanking, Evidence thanking based, all these baby. big sugar companies for the, for the money they've been giving me. <laughs> it's actually a pet peeve of mine. I posted it once on Facebook and got an interesting reaction that we're, uh, I got a couple of people on my Facebook. They'll post a picture of themselves next to an expensive car and it ain't theirs. It is not. There's one guy does it all the time. It's kind of ridiculous implying that these are his or, Oh, this one's being shipped here. This one's over in fucking Vancouver, some bullshit. And of course people will ask us, but Hey, is that yours? And then oftentimes there'll be no response. And then one guy's friend went in, no, that's his buddies. And that the house, the big expensive house behind it, that that's also his buddies. But the guy wouldn't respond himself. Yeah, why would you do that? Because they're they're pretending. That yeah, they own though I'm saying shit. that he's smart. That you know what? That's the answer. Like that's how you battle this. Like yeah, go to the dealership instead of saying you're being paid off. Be like, oh yeah, look how well I'm doing because I'm getting out this information. And then people will be like, well, <laughs> and then you, yeah, and then you put a story on Instagram that pops up to everyone's feed where you're like taking a selfie with like this mansion, and then everyone's like, well, he's rich. He must be doing something right. That's appealing to that audience, but then, like we've talked about, the bait and switch. You give them the good stuff after. I, I know. <laughs> Sorry, well, I, I go this like, rant. Like, <laughs> Alan and Brad kind of have this running joke, and I occasionally get in on it myself, but but they troll each other. Like, like Brad is always posting little pictures of like, you know, hey, did you guys see Alan's mansion here that he, you know, <laughs> that he gets what from his AARR subscriptions? You know, it'll have like a big moat around it and everything. So, okay, <laughs> uh, we're going, we're moving on. So let's just talk about teaching. So it, it, weirdly enough, I was I was a teacher before all this. Um, is more kindergarten, high school type stuff. So definitely not the same level. But you had an extensive or have an extensive role as a teacher in this industry. 
let's just talk about career for our fitness professionals. Why do you think it's maybe not the best way to just define yourselves as coaching clients? Like instead of devoting efforts to things that are beyond like, like teaching, like what do you find the value in the kind of the path you've chosen? I think when you actually try to teach others beyond just coaching, I think it forces you, and especially when you make it public, um, first it puts your ideas to the test um, because you you get a lot of eyes on it, right? Uh, um, it, you know, it opens yourself to criticism, but that can be a good thing um, if it's if it's constructive and, and it's in a good way. You know, um, if it forces you to, you know, maybe reevaluate your certain positions on things or rethink certain things. Um, I think I think there's a value in that. Um, and then plus, I just think you get a bigger reach. You know, um, when you're coaching, I mean, your reach is pretty small, but when you start whether it's writing articles or presenting to large groups or thing, things like that, you can reach a lot more people. Um, and I think the other thing is, is um, I mean, I think maybe this is true with coaching too because people are coming to you, but, but you're also reaching people who, who are actually coming to you in some way, whether they, they actually came to your site because they wanted to read an article or whatever. Um, so these are people that are open to learning as well. And so I think there's a lot of advantages there. Um, uh uh, and then I, I'd say one other thing is that uh, when you teach other people, it, it you actually learn a lot by teaching. Like I've always found I learn a lot by teaching because, uh, well, I'll give a perfect example. When I'm making a presentation for a conference or something like that, um, you know, I'm not just throwing this stuff off the top of my head. I mean, I, I have to do, I have to dig some of the research. I got to. Uh, I got to look through to make sure, okay, is what I'm saying accurate? You know, um, so I end up learning a lot in the process myself when I have to prepare material to teach others, you know, yeah. so. And I've heard that before too. Like I've been consuming some Pat, um, Dr. Pat Davidson stuff and he's like, he almost tries to choose a new topic because every time he does a presentation, because then, yeah, he has to kind of go back through the stuff and or learn. And it's just like, the process, because you're not going to go stand up in front of a bunch of people and and not have an answer, or if you sound like an idiot, because if you do, you're going to never do that again. Because if you've ever done that, it's the worst. But yeah, yeah you end up learning more and kind of solidifying what you already knew and, and making having a better understanding of it. So I think that's a huge point. Yeah, and even just like um, Eric Bach talked a lot about it. Just the and you've you've written lots. I think that that is a form of teaching that I think a lot of people don't actually consider. They think it's kind of like work. You're teaching people through written word. I think one of the most oh, yeah. important things for us in the industry is, I've heard this a number of times, if you're just working directly with clients, you're just impacting the person in front of you. If you have the kind of reach, the kind of knowledge that you can share with other fitness professionals, and you can have an effect on those fitness professionals who are then turning around and coaching a lot of people, you can have a much greater impact on a much larger number of people with what you know, the skills you've developed. Oh, oh yeah, it, it, it becomes kind of exponential. It's almost like a, um, it's almost like a network marketing scheme. You know, it's like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Ew. Get all these, but, like, but it sort of you, you, like a, it pulls out like a pyramid, except this is in a positive sense yeah. and not. <laughs> if, honestly, though, that's part of the process of the. They're not stupid. Like that whole system is developed based on like human psychology, and like again, that's part of the process is putting out the information. Like whether they're, there's a little different, but they're, they're bringing yeah, yeah, people yeah. in. It's one more way of bringing people in. And like guys like you, you know, a few things. So, I mean, you could probably write a lot of things and you have written a lot of things. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, it's kind of funny when I go back to, it's interesting too, because the interesting thing when you write and stuff, uh, you can see how your thinking evolves over time. Cause when I look at some of the stuff I wrote, you know, years and years and years ago, I mean, I'm talking, you know, say back in the nineties, um, I think, you know, I cringe at looking at some of the stuff I wrote cause I'm like, I'm like, Oh, like I can't believe I actually wrote that. You know, <laughs> cause my thinking has evolved, you know, since then. So I think it would be kind of dangerous if you didn't think that way to look back at something you'd written eight to 10 years ago and that everything was still the way you viewed the world right now. It could speak to the fact that you haven't evolved or gained knowledge or changed with new information. So I'd be very, very yeah. concerned. And I think you mentioned a guy like Gary Tubbs earlier. Some of these kinds of individuals, they tend to stay stuck in their, their indoctrination in an idea and it, they won't move off that position even in the face of overwhelming evidence. So I think it's a bad thing to not, uh, not evolve. I think part on. of that, though, is just that's like human brain psychology. It's, it's just easier not to challenge your thoughts, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's kind of where you move forward. But a lot of people would move away from it because it's easier. <laughs> it's easier to self-gratify by like, I know this information, thus it's true, as opposed to, I guess, challenging your theoretical models moving forward. And I think that a lot of people like you in the evidence-based community do that, but they also have the science to back it up. And that kind of breaks that barrier, too, because you can't you can't not say that this is wrong when it's in a science study or at least you can challenge yeah. it. Or I was also going to say that um, also I think, I think money plays a role too. I mean, I look at someone like Gary Taubes, he's, he's basically built himself a little financial empire on his ideas. And so to basically suddenly change his mind, <laughs> I think, I think, I think the dollars can definitely cloud someone's judgment, you know, um, so, Rightfully so, so. I, I think it's financially beneficial to him to continue his little cult following, you know, that he's got, you know, even though he's maybe not as big as he used to be, he's still, you know, he still commands, uh, you know, like for people to get him to speak somewhere, I don't remember how much he charges in speaker fees is some ridiculous amount. But, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard somewhere like, um, and this is just rumor. I, I don't know. Cause I didn't, put the, the event together, but the, uh, the, the epic fitness summit back in 2015 where Alan debated Gary, uh, um, I heard someone, I heard Gary's speaker fee was something like $10,000 or 20,000 or some ridiculous amount, you know? So, Shit. um, this is kind of <laughs> insane. Yeah. Well, I'll get paid. I suppose I could get paid $10,000 to stand up and, and be torn apart by Alan. I probably <laughs> hey, give me the money. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of some stupid idea. Uh, this whole idea of teaching in the industry, you don't just teach. You also still work directly with your own clientele. And uh, one, one of the things you said, you grabbed a quote that, repeated a quote that you pulled from somewhere else, but I really liked it a lot. It, it said, I didn't lose 200 pounds. I lost one pound 200 times. Could you explain the shift in mindset within that quote? And how it could benefit anyone looking to lose weight. I, I think uh, I think it's a number of things. I mean, th number one, I think it's in terms of attainability. When when someone, let's say someone's very overweight or obese, and they've got a lot they got to lose, uh, that can feel really overwhelming um, to think, oh man, I've got all this to lose, and like you know. And I think that's why where people tend to get stuck in quick fixes and stuff because they want to lose it fast. You know, um, they 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 want to they want that two hundred pounds gone. You know, right away. Um, but that's just not realistic from, especially from a long-term perspective. And I think, 
when someone says, you know, when you change your mindset, you could say, okay, you know, I can't lose 200 pounds right away, but you know what? I can lose one pound this week. You know, I can certainly do that. And it, and it, and it gives you a, 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 I think, a a better sense of control and self-efficacy, you know, and then once you've lost that one pound, you think, you know what? I can lose one more pound this week. And you just take it one week at a time. Um, and the interesting thing is, is, you know, suddenly you look back over a period of 20 weeks or something like that, you think, wow, you know, I've really made some good progress. So, um, um, and I think it, uh, I think it's also a good mindset from, a from a, um, just from a long-term perspective and we're talking over years, you know, when you have that mentality to just do it slowly, um, I think you're more likely to sustain the changes that you need to make over a very long period of time. And you're also less likely to freak out if for some reason, you know, you've lost a bunch of weight and all of a sudden you gain a pound or two, you're less likely to, I think, I think you're going to have a better perspective on that and say, Hey, it's just, you know, I've just gained a few pounds back. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I can, I can easily lose it again, you know, versus someone who loses it quickly. I will say you do a little carb diet and then all of a sudden they switch back to high carb and suddenly they regain, you know, they gain a bunch of water weight back, you know, they gain like five, 10 pounds back in water weight just instantly. And then that psychologically affects them. And then, so then they just say, well, they say, fuck it. I'm not going to, I guess I might as well just bought, not even bother and then they gain all their weight back. So, um, so I think that mentality is really, really important, uh, to have. Could you actually really quickly explain for anyone who doesn't quite understand the mechanism, what is it about the reduction in carbohydrates that causes a loss of water weight? Just break it down for people. So it's simple to understand. Yeah. So, um, you actually store carbohydrate in your body. You store it in your liver and in your muscles. Uh, it's called glycogen. And every gram of carbohydrate that you store stores about three grams of water along with it. So when you go on a low-carb diet, you lose a bunch of glycogen, uh, that, that stored carbohydrate in your body, and you lose the water that goes along with it. And so you have a – you can – especially if you're overweight or obese, you can lose a fair amount of water very quickly, body water very, very quickly. Um, but it's not fat weight you're losing. It's just water weight that's, that's dropped very quickly. And, you know, sometimes there can be a benefit to that. It, it can be motivating to some people to see that immediate uh, drop in scale. Um, uh, but you have to be aware of what it is. It's not true fat weight that you've dropped. If you don't have that awareness, then when you gain some water weight back quickly, let's say through re reintroducing carbohydrates into your diet, you suddenly think you're gaining a bunch of fat back when you're not. So I suppose another important thing too, is people hear the term water weight, and especially because of the competitive fitness industry with things like, Oh, you're holding water in your lower back. And this, no, that's, that's fat. Like that's bullshit. That is fat. This water is largely held inside the muscles. Cause again, like yeah. stored in the muscles and the liver, this water is actually held inside the muscle. So, you're actually losing muscle weight, if you want to put it well, that way. It's not water weight that's somehow like sitting in your your visceral belly fat when you look smaller. Yeah, yeah. Like, especially if you're yeah. lean, like losing water just makes you look flatter because your yeah, muscles yeah, are totally. essentially shrinking in size. Yeah, so we have just a lot of misconceptions. Now, if you also made dietary changes, lower carbohydrate and there's lower sodium, that's further exaggerating the loss of water weight too. So I just want to make sure people understand 
how these mechanisms work, at least a basic functioning understanding of it, so that way they're not conned into thinking, hey, I've lost a bunch of body fat. Well, it's like when I would cut for powerlifting meets. Like, I could lose, stupidly, but, like, I could lose uh, 8, 9, 10% in a day. But that's, did I lose 20 pounds? Like, fuck yeah. Get on my diet of drinking <laughs> 10 liters of water a day and then not drinking any water. And I think that, yeah. Or sustain it for any length of time and not die. <laughs> feel like but I could easily go on the internet and say, hey, look at this crazy diet I just did. I lost 20 pounds in a day. Like, okay. And the people have done that. Weirdly. You'd sell a bunch of shit. Yeah. Isn't that what the, that's what the biggest loser used to do? Like when, totally not on topic, but like when they would go to win the competition per week, like some of the guys that were like 300 pounds, they would water load before the weigh-ins and then like cut their water out so they could make it through the next week. Like totally smart. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Anyways, those guys were losing a lot of, like, they would go from, like, oh, I didn't lose a pound this week. So they weren't in fucking whatever. They weren't on the block. And then the next week, they were protected or they weren't protected. So they would water load that whole week. And they're like, oh, I lost 20 pounds. And it was just, that's a horrible competition. <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't even know why I brought that. Okay. You know what? You're, you're an evidence based guy. How do you feel about the, the industry in terms of tribalism around? taking over discussions in the fitness and nutrition industry. And the main specific word is that tribalism involved. Yeah. It's, again, I think you're getting down to human nature. People like to be part of groups and they like to, I think they like to feel that somehow their group is somehow superior to another group. Um, and so, yeah, so you get people get into their tribes. You got low carb, you've got paleo, you know, um, you even see it in exercise with CrossFit and like, I mean, people just get in their little groups and like, they want to think that their group is the best. And I mean, but I think it's human nature. You see it in politics with, you know, liberals versus conservatives and, and you know, the conservatives say, Oh, the liberals are all, they're, they're, they're bad. And the liberals will say, no, it's the conservatives are all evil. And like, like, um, and then you see it with religion and it's just, it's human nature, I think, to to get involved in tri in tribes, and it. But the, the problem is, you know, when it, it, it when you get involved in fitness and nutrition, it's like it. Um, I think it, it it can take people away from potential things that can help them. So let's say if, let's say someone is kind of sucked into a low carb tribe, and they're you know they're all about low carb and stuff like that, and um, they kind of get in that low carb echo chamber, um, and let's say they're struggling. You know, it's interesting, like if you go on some of these low carb forums and stuff and let's say, you know, you'll find lots of people that are struggling to lose weight, um, even though they're low carb and, and the advice these people will get from other low carbs be like, no, you just need to drop your carbs more. You know, you need to go zero carb, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, but that type of advice, that's not going to help people, but they're, but they're, but because they're caught in this tribalism, like they, they're not able to see another perspective on what the issue may actually be. And so, um, yeah, I just say, I think, I think tribalism tends to, start, you know, like I said that some of the positives of tribalism are, yeah, people feel a sense of community and stuff like that, but, but there's also a lot of negatives to it, uh, um, in, in the sense that I just described. So I think it gets dangerous when the tribal behavior or message overrides actual science and evidence. And I think yeah. you, know, you cited politics and religion, and that definitely happens in both of those entities. But I, we just released today, uh, well, as of us recording this, so a couple weeks from now, uh, 
you'll be looking back a couple weeks, but we released uh, Peter Baker's episode and we actually talked about uh, how fitness and nutrition, especially there's a, a lot of overlap between the way that we think about religion and how religion operates. And now modern day, especially on Instagram, we see religious type devotion in camps and ideologies based around various different nutritional aspects, keto, or uh, again, low carb keto is just a, I guess a variant to low carb, a specific one or intermittent fasting or various other things that we're seeing now, like this shit is being treated like religion. And people are reacting oh, yeah. like you are saying that oh, your God isn't real <laughs> when they <laughs> you yeah, shoot down crap like uh, <laughs> fasted cardio, for example. They get upset about that. What's the Krieger tribe like? <laughs> <laughs> That's the good one. But like, I know. but you know, <laughs> but there's also, we, but there's also that idea of like, let's just say the evidence based tribalism approach because there there is that absolutely. idea, and it's I think that it's the people in it know it but there's also pushing the boundaries too so if you don't get so stuck in the fact that there's like you just got to be open i guess to other forms of thinking because that drives i guess progress and you're right you don't i was going to say the same thing you know the evidence-based community can function very tribal as well and we can get caught in a bit of an echo chamber uh you know jay ashman a good buddy of ours he loves to talk about the circle jerk within the industry (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of twisted up uh and jay is an interesting sort of character who i think He's really good at staying away from getting too entrenched in one very firm and hard position, which maybe makes yeah. him a little bit better than some of the rest of us at this sort of thing. But we can be just as guilty of it too. And I think it's really important well, it, to be able to think the way that everybody else I think is as long as you don't let your bias affect progress. Because I think yes. I think it was Brett Contreras wrote that article about like how his bias may have affected certain outcomes of some of the studies he's done. And he totally admitted it. And I think that yeah. as long as you're kind of more self-aware of where this thing is going, because evidence-based, I guess you can, there is a tribe around some of the thoughts, but it's it becomes a negative, like you said, when progress isn't happening based on bias or like this is the only way. And I think that the evidence-based approach is finding the right way constantly and constantly improving. So there's that benefit of it. So I think that we're just going in circles, but there's good and bad, I guess, to it. I don't know we're what circle the jerking right now is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, basically. But I don't, I don't know what the good of like fucking some of these tribes are. Some of them are they're all bad, but they're, I guess they're inspiring people. There's there's the silver line. <laughs> Murky shit. Wow. Well, yeah. Whatever. Um, okay. We, we gotta we gotta we'll close start closing this thing down. But like from what I understand. And this is totally the backstory behind this is we, we do scripts and we loosely base it off of, but Andrew was like, Hey, um, James and I are, are getting picked up on a limo for this Spokane Inland Empire Fitness Summit. And I'm like, I'm not fucking asking that. Like what, <laughs> would you discuss, like he wants us to ask, like, is this happening? And I was like, well, are they getting a private jet too? Like I'm, it goes back to that whole idea of like, I guess James is a big deal. You guys are all big deals now. Well, uh, Tim it's not private. I'm actually, I'm going to actually come into the conference in helicopter. Like, right, right while my presentation's ready, a helicopter's going to yeah, land down on the helipad. And <laughs> yeah, evidence-based money right there. Like, that's that's what you do all your studies for. Like, I'm looking at your resume. Like, how many, do you even know offhand how many studies you're part of? A little bit of background. So, yeah, I'm going to go down to Spokane, and James is one of the speakers in this event, along with people like Nick Tuminello, uh, and our our recent guest, Megan Calloway, is going to be presenting for the first time. And so she's been nervous as hell trying to prepare for that. She's amazing. But uh, yeah, so we've got this really great event that our buddy Tim Arndt is, uh, is putting together. So I'm just going to get you to discuss that a little bit more because but it'll be coming up very shortly after we release this podcast. But maybe there's someone listening who might last minute decide, hey, I want to check that out. 
Yeah, so uh, Inland Empire Fitness Conference. It's going to be uh, in Spokane, not Spokane, Spokane. <laughs> it's, there's actually a song that someone did a parody off, the, off of uh, Eric Clapton's cocaine song, and they called it Spokane. But uh, um, uh, we like to joke around and call it Brocane. But uh, um, yeah, so Spokane, Washington, Inland Empire Fitness Conference. Um, there's going to be a bunch of presenters there. Um, I'm going to be presenting on science of, of muscle hypertrophy uh, nick tuminello is presenting on a bunch of stuff um there's actually a, a quite a few speakers there uh, uh chad landers megan you mentioned megan calway uh, um mike howard um from vancouver he's going to be there um yeah yeah brad dieter um and there's actually a pre-conference event too so some of us are presenting at the pre-conference event as well so like i'll be presenting on how to improve critical thinking in the fitness industry. Um, and, uh, I know Brad's presenting, I think on something at the pre-conference, I can't remember the topic. And then Nick is presenting as well at the pre-conference. So yeah, it's like a, um, it's a two day event. The pre-conference is on Friday, um, April 6th. And then the, the full conference is on April 7th, Saturday. And, um, yeah, it's going to be an awesome event. Uh, um, really learn a lot. Uh, you can get you get you know if you're a trainer, you want you're looking for continuing education credits. Uh, you can get CEUs for going to that. So so if you're in the area or if you're even reasonably close, uh, yeah, I, su- I highly suggest people check that uh, conference out. It's a it's a hell of a lot of fun too. There's a lot of good after party activities <laughs> the, and the stuff too. So yeah, <laughs> so. Uh, um, and you're yeah, flying in a, a helicopter. Yeah, um, <laughs> and you're showing that evidence-based money. You're gonna turn everyone over. Like, listen, this is what happens. You get that money. Yeah, I'm gonna use my. I'll use my shill money. You know, <laughs> so. your shill money. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the questions I always ask everyone, although Dean last podcast stole my question, yeah. uh, we ask each guest to share a book that they've read uh, with our audience. Uh, something that's been influential for your life, your career. So, do you have a particular book that you'd like to share? Uh, a book that's been influential. Um, it could be fiction, by the way. No one's given me a <laughs> yeah. fiction answer yet. It's uh, as far as influential in my career. I, I don't. I can't say there's been any book that's been influential in my career, career-wise. I mean, you know, um, as far as. I guess when you ask influential on career, are you talking more just general or just more like very fitness specific? Like it, um, it could really be anything. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, one book that I really like a lot is Seth Godin's Lynchpin, and a lot is just about the way you approach and think about how uh, you approach your work. So, <clears throat> if you are working a job that you think is beneath you, it's early in your career, you're not getting paid a lot of money, and you can feel like, well, I'm only in. T- I'm getting paid this much, so therefore I'm only going to work this hard. You're going to kind of have a crappy attitude. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere. Whereas if you look at it and go, okay, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to be bright and and go way above and beyond. I'm going to treat people amazing and have an awesome attitude about it. Well, first of all, it makes your experience a lot more pleasant. People react to you in a more pleasant fashion. But pretty quickly, you're going to go beyond that role. And other career opportunities will open up and people will literally see you in that role and be like, you're being underemployed. Like, come work for me. Right. So something could be something simple like that, or it could be a technical manual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I guess, uh, a few books come to mind. I mean, first uh, years and years ago, I read Stephen Covey's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. Um, and I actually don't remember much about the book, but the one thing that always stood out to me 
from that book was your circle of concern versus your circle of influence. So, uh, so a lot of people, they concern themselves too much with things that they really have very little influence, have no influence over at all. Um, and that would be your circle of concern. Um, but your circle of, of influence is basically the things around you that you re- actually can change and influence. And people, people spend too much time in their circle of concern and not enough time in their circle of influence on the things they actually really have power to influence. So, um, I would say that always stood out to me. You know, it's something I try to do with my own life. It's like, I try to concern myself most with the things I know I truly can make some type of difference or influence in some way. And I try not to concern myself too much with things that I really don't have that much control over. I'm not saying I'm perfect there. I mean, we all tend to sometimes get worried about things that we shouldn't be worried about and stuff, but I, I, I try to keep my focus on the things that I actually have the power to, uh, to actually influence. So, um, I'd say it was probably that, that always stood out to me from that book. So well, it's considered to be one of the most important and influential kind of business philosophy type books that's out there. So self-development. If you go on Amazon, that's still up there. Yeah. That's the book. That's like one of the main habit books, which even if you didn't learn anything, like you, you learn about habits, which is positive and negative, but you can create habits and that's a big change. And often when you're reading a book of this nature anyway, oftentimes you're really only going to pull away one or two key things from it. And if you do that, that's going to take you a long way. That's the one thing. Yeah. So we talk about audiobooks and listen to them at two times speed. And like, I probably get less out of audiobooks just because if I'm going at two times speed, they're fucking, if I, if I don't pay attention for one second, I'm losing something. So yeah, but then I can read faster. So I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. Let's just wrap this thing up. Where can, and we've kind of talked about your avenues, but where can our listeners find you, whether it's on social media or your website, what's the best way to kind of consume you and your information? Yeah. The, the, the best way would be just my website, weightology.net. That's W-E-I-G-H-T-O-L-O-G-Y.net. Um, and then all my social media links are on there. So people can follow me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram uh, from there. Um, and then I have tons of free content on there, free articles that people can read. I had mentioned my insulin series, uh, you know, is on there. I've got a series on body composition testing that that's always been really popular, kind of showing how inaccurate body composition testing really is. Uh, um, and just a lot of other free content. And then, then I have a uh, paid content as well. I have a research review, um, where I, uh, cover, you know, various, uh, science related to fat loss and, and muscle gain. Um, um, and then I also, you know, do, do some online coaching and things like that as well. So, so yeah, that's where people can reach me. I love that you used uh, weightology. I remember, well, you mentioned James Fell earlier, so you did an article shooting down, was it Shakeology? And how you add <laughs> ology to the end of something, you make it sound really sciencey. And then he, I think the word fuckology got in there pretty, pretty consistently. <laughs> I want to be a master's in fuckology. I think I'd make a lot of money at that. When James goes off on shit, he's fantastic because there may not be more more uh, the evidence based zealot in our industry on that. I know industry. he's awesome. I, I love his writing. His his writing is awesome. When so. he's when he's not so hardcore, the politics stuff. His stuff is amazing. The politics stuff gets a little bit intense sometimes, but now he's an awesome dude. I'm gonna have to work on getting him on here. We've we've mentioned him more than a few times. But guys, uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to this podcast, James. This is a really awesome treat and pleasure to have you on here so thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and hopefully everybody enjoys this one and 
If you're listening to this one, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, next week we'll be treating you to Holly Baxter. And if you don't know who Holly Baxter is, well, that's Lane Norton's girlfriend amongst uh, many other roles that she has. So she should be pretty great. And uh, so hopefully you'll tune in next week and we could really use a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff helps us out a ton. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Shut up and sit down.